Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi. Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, and welcome to uh, our Thursday episode of Deep State Radio, our weekend episode. Uh, I'm really delighted to have, as we do every Thursday, uh, co-host here, Ryan Goodman of Just Security and of NYU Law School. Hi, Ryan. How are you? Hi, David. Pretty well. And we are also delighted to be joined by two uh, folks who've been on our show before. One uh, uh, is Evo Dalder, who's the... Um, CEO of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, former U.S. ambassador to uh, NATO. Hi, Evo. Hi. Great to be here. Great to have you here. And uh, the Washington Post's uh, irreplaceable Greg Sargent of the Plum Line. Hi, Greg. How are you? Hi. Uh, good to be on again. Well, it's good to have you. And I want you to know, by the way, as we just dive in with the conversation, that uh, Deep State Radio has achieved total world domination, as you would expect. Uh, this week, I don't know if you've caught this, but the new Merriam-Webster Dictionary came out. And in the new Merriam-Webster Dictionary, they added the term deep state to the dictionary. And in their definition of the term, the first explication of the term in it is a quote from me describing what the deep state is. So we are it. If you want to understand the deep state, this is this is the place to come. And these guys are obviously part of it, working behind the scenes for um, our leaders in black helicopters everywhere. Um, By the way, I, I, I'm sure that the president noticed this when he was perusing the new edition of Merriam-Webster. Yes, yes. <laughs> He's a voracious reader, our president. He likes nothing better than to read um, reference volumes. Um, let's talk a little bit about our president. Then we've got a, a Evo's organization has come up with a study, and I think that'll be a, a good next place to go. But but there's a big story in Washington right now, um, and uh, rather than me explain it, Ryan, you explain the big story in Washington. <laughs> so um, sounds like there's a whistleblower who is part of the intelligence community, and. Uh, in August 12th of this year, reported to the Inspector General for the Intelligence Community on a matter of serious concern uh, involving the president. Uh, and according to the Washington Post, uh, New York Times, NBC, uh, the concern relates to communications that the president had with another foreign leader and promises that he made to that foreign leader. The Inspector General then reviewed this complaint by the whistleblower and determined it to be a quote-unquote urgent concern, um, something of great significance involving a flagrant violation of law or uh, orders of the executive within the executive branch and something that does not amount to a policy difference um, or disagreement, so something extreme. And then uh, 
did what he, after he made that conclusion, gave it to the uh, acting uh, director of national intelligence, who by statute must, within seven days, shall uh, give that to Congress, and he did not. Uh, so the acting director of national intelligence, uh, Mr. McGuire, uh, decided that he would, in fact, turn to Bill Barr's Justice Department for um, to ask them what he should do, and it sounds like the Justice Department in the White House put the kibosh on him, refused to let him sub, uh, send the whistleblower's complaint, at, by, at, which he's required to do by statute to Congress. And so the inspector general decided to do something pretty enormous, which is go around his boss in a certain sense, but he's allowed to do this and report to the Intelligence Committee as to what was happening. And just bef- before we start getting the reaction of these gentlemen to that, um, I, he went further, didn't he? He wrote a letter in which he uh, asserted that he was uncomfortable with the way that he was treated, right? That's right. So it's um, blistering language, especially coming from the kind of language you'd otherwise see any inspector general, including this one, who was appointed by Donald Trump, uh, saying that this is an egregious uh, situation that he's being placed in, and uh, the bizarre nature of this in terms of, uh, as a legal matter, it sounds like the Justice Department has tried to technically say that the complainant, uh, the, the whistleblower, is talking about an issue that doesn't come within the jurisdiction of the Director of National Intelligence. We don't know what the underlying facts are, so we don't know whether or not there's a plausible claim for that, but the Inspector General's letter couldn't be clearer. He says, no, on the contrary... This is one of the most important, significant issues, which is at basically at the core of what the Director of National Intelligence does in order to protect the American people. So um, I trust, you know, if I had to put my money down, I certainly trust the Inspector General, not this Justice Department. And it seems like they're obviously trying to cover this up and hide it from Congress. And the Inspector General's letter also says this defies all of the past practice, because in all of the past practice, when we've made a determination that it doesn't meet the statute, we still give it to Congress, um, to the House and and Senate Intelligence Committees, and that's not being done here. So he's actually in the letter even calling out uh, the the, uh, Director of National Intelligence, saying this is an additional flagrant violation. So, Greg... Every day, something new happens in Washington, and um, CNN and MSNBC and sometimes Fox run big, blaring chirons that say, breaking news, this is urgent. Um, And we've become numb to this, because it's literally every day. Um, And so the question is, is this different somehow, and if so, how, in your mind, Greg? I don't know if it's different. In fact, I've been trying to to weave this in in the pieces that I've done. I've been trying to weave this into the broader narratives that we're all very familiar with because it seems to me that at least at the outset, the story was mostly getting ignored because it was very easy to sort of go very deep into the weeds on it and get lost in discussions about – um, you know, and inspectors general and, and, and statute and so forth. But really what we have here is yet another example of basic guardrails being bulldozed, right? Uh, the statute that's being openly flaunted uh, at the behest of the Department of Justice, the Department of Justice, which is advising the DNI to break the law, 
uh, the statute we're talking about here was set up for a reason. I did some reporting on this and talked to people who have really studied the um, legislative history of it. And, and the statute was set up explicitly in order to make congressional oversight easier and more effective, right? And that's why it was structured so that a whistleblower would go to the inspector general and that if the inspector general, who's theoretically independent of agency brass, determined that it was credible and urgent, uh, as the statute requires, um, then the DNI has to forward it. And the reason it was set up that way, in fact, the, the legislative history shows that they debated giving um, the DNI a little bit more discretion to, to not forward it, but that was actually rejected, um, which underscores that the importance of not allowing the agency brass, which can often be politicized, to interfere in the process. And so lawmakers set it up explicitly so that they, meaning the lawmakers, could get these complaints from whistleblowers more easily without interference. And it's just remarkable that the Department of Justice is advising the DNI to break this law. But so it's, it's really of a piece with the broader story, isn't it, of uh, how in, in, on just about every conceivable front, the machinery of government is being wheeled into action to, in effect, um, uh, render accountability a lot harder. The government is being turned against uh, any and all efforts to hold Trump accountable. Well, yeah. I mean, there's one nugget missing from the story, of course, which is the substance. We don't, we don't know what he did. <laughs> and so, you know, right. th there there is the the the, the uh, question of accountability and and guardrails, and I want to raise that with Evo in a second. But you know, if the president of the United States, well, let, let me go back to Ryan with a question about that, and then I'll go to you, Evo. Give give me an example of what the president might have been doing that you've heard in the ether, without saying you know this is what happened. It just illustrates the kind of thing. Um, it has to be so severe, uh, and for this inspector general to take the actions that he's taken, I think two plausible fact patterns that fit are, it has to do with, um, Putin, that's the foreign leader, and maybe, uh, selling out the person who we recently discovered was the, um, asset in Russia, uh, that provided the Mueller team and the FBI with all the information about the Russian interference in the 2016 election. It is convenient that the president decided, or on the president's watch, we decided to get rid of the asset who was really the critical observer in this case, Craig. Right. Um, so that potentially fits the pattern. Another one that fits the pattern, including phone calls that the president had with foreign leaders right around the time just before the whistleblower made his complaint, his or her complaint is the Ukraine. So is Trump, did Trump in phone calls and other actions with uh, the Ukrainian leadership try to push them into opening up a false corruption investigation into Joe Biden in exchange for hundreds of millions of dollars in military assistance to Ukraine? It certainly seems that Rudy Giuliani has been doing that um, in his quote-unquote private capacity, um, but I think we can drill down into the private capacity. And that fits the pattern. So it's something that would be of such a grave magnitude, uh, interference in, the, uh, in our own elections, 
something that's deep, a deep form of public corruption like that that involves intelligence activities, I think that's, it sounds like it might be something in that order of magnitude. Um, yeah, now, by the way, red flags, that pure speculation yes. in both cases. We don't know what it is, uh, but as Ryan says, it rises to a very high level. Evo, both you and I have, over the course of our career, spent some time writing about and observing um, the structure of the government, what the process is, how things work. And, it, and it's like, I, you know, you, you probably recall back in the day the debate over the neutron bomb, which was a bomb that could um, uh, uh, just, you know, kill people but not leave buildings standing. And it it seems in some ways that they've used the reverse of that on this government, where they've obliterated institutions uh, and just left the people standing. Um, and, you know, we, we've seen this in several instances. Uh, th in this case, standards that have been followed in the past have not um, been applied. The DOJ doesn't recognize the power of the United States Congress to conduct oversight over the president. It says, in fact, only the president can conduct oversight over the president, which is completely inconsistent with the Constitution. But at the same time, and I think it's relevant in this context, the entire national security apparatus of the United States government has stopped working. We just this week had a new national security advisor appointed, the least qualified national security advisor in American history, in my judgment. Um, but even before this essential non-entity was appointed as the National Security Advisor, we haven't been using the NSC. There haven't been principals meetings. There haven't been deputies meetings. Bolton's been cut out of the process. So we don't have oversight. We don't have uh, a, a, a policy process. The president's entirely, you know, he wants to be on his own, doing his own thing without any accountability. And that's where we've ended up, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's a mess, uh, to coin a phrase. Um, you know, Donald Trump is running the U.S. government in the same way he ran the Trump Organization, which is from his desk on the 54th or whatever floor it is that his office is of Trump Tower. Uh, and everything is about him and everything is done by him and for him. Uh, and the problem is we don't actually have a government of men. We have a government of laws. And those laws are the ones that uh, decide who gets to do what, when, and how. Uh, and it is in the compliance with those laws that uh, our security uh, and our freedom ultimately lies. And we have seen in the last two and a half years what happens when presidents uh, start to think that the laws are they are just for other people, but not for them. Uh, on the process side, which in some ways, you know, you have to be a student uh, of the deep state in some uh, in the ways that 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 you are that that I've been to understand how important process is. Because what process does is it is the provision of information uh, to decision makers so they can make decisions based on as much information and as much consideration as is humanly possible. That's what process does. Process is about getting the information to the right people at the right time. And that means being able to, uh, uh, to, to have people come together, the right expertise come together to decide what we know, what we don't know, what we can but don't yet know, what we will never know, and what options to pursue to deal with the particular issues. 
And a key to that process is to know the information that we have and the and not have. And the intelligence community is at the core of that. And now we have an intelligence community that is being uh, becoming a political football uh, by this White House. And that is extraordinarily dangerous, not only for the reasons that Ryan pointed out in, in terms of what happened, but in terms of our ability to act on almost anything. If we don't believe the information that we have or it becomes distorted, then how are we going to tell uh, the public? How are we going to tell our military, our diplomats and others to do what they need to do, let alone our allies? So um, this mess that, that exists has real consequences uh, that, uh, in, in, in the lives and security of our country. Yes. Um, now, Ryan, as 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 we look at this, um, <clears throat> there is this guy, this deputy uh, director of national intelligence who became the acting director of national intelligence, McGuire, um, who was completely unknown to anybody, uh, who has, by his behavior, put himself into a special category of people who have placed um, political loyalty above loyalty to the Constitution and their oaths of office uh, and the law. And in fact, I, I found it kind of telling that one of the things that McGuire said in response to the subpoena or in, in, in response to the query about this matter that first came from Adam Schiff was that um, he, he was told by a higher authority not to follow the law. But there is no higher authority. The law is the law. The president is not above the law, and the president can't rewrite the law. Um, and in fact, it this is not just you know, you know, sort of tisk tisking at all of this. There's a there's a substantive consequence, which is it would not be outside of the law for the whistleblower to go to Congress and explain everything against the wishes of the DNI because the law says he should do it. He might get fired, but but he wouldn't be in legal jeopardy. Is that, am I, am I misreading that? I think, so, um, I think McGuire, we should also all remember is in an acting position. And then I think it's also important to underscore that uh, the president has said multiple occasions that he much prefers acting uh, senior officials than confirmed ones where he has this, he thinks it's, it gives him flexibility is the word that he's used for it, so he likes it. Um, so McGuire's in that kind of predicament. The higher authority, I think, could also be over inside the Justice Department because if the Office of Legal Counsel tells him this is our reading of the law, that's the reading of the law for the executive branch. Um, I did think that there was something pretty much buried in the Washington Post report just in terms of it appeared in a very late paragraph on the scoop that was the bombshell uh, report yesterday that <clears throat> this involved a promise that the president made to a foreign leader. It, down deep, it says that McGuire has expressed his displeasure to the White House and the Justice Department. So it sounds like it's not that he's necessarily acting in bad faith, but that he's being put in this position by the White House, by the Justice Department. That's who's giving him these orders. And uh, here again, we have a kind of a weak person who's been placed in a vulnerable position. The president thinks he has greater flexibility over him. And the IG letters that came out just this afternoon that are blistering um, 
suggest that Maguire is now not behaving um, in the best of ways and that he's not giving the whistleblower legal assurances that he will not be retaliated against, that instead Maguire seems to have said to the um, whistleblower and the inspector general that he's given him his personal assurances, but my God, the guy's the acting director of national intelligence. He could be gone tomorrow morning. His personal assurance doesn't protect this guy. So I think that's what this person is worried about, his legal jeopardy, and all he has is the personal assurance of the acting DNI who might you know, be fired on a tweet. Um, it's true. And, and the Congress has not acted swiftly or strongly in any other cases, but they do seem to be acting on this um, on, on this one, Greg. I, I'm sensing, although you, you were right in, in underscoring what is similar between this and other, other crises uh, of the Trump administration, that this one seems to be of a slightly different order because for the first time you actually have somebody saying, I'm not going to go along with the suppression. I'm not going to go along with the obstruction. And at the same time, the issues involved in this case rise to the level of being national security threats, uh, rise to the level of the direct conversations between the president uh, and other leaders. And of course, we have a number of examples where the president's behavior with foreign leaders has been suspect or dubious, ranging from the day after Comey gets fired, inviting in um, the Russian ambassador and the Russian foreign minister and giving them classified intelligence that the Israelis uh, came upon the hard way, and the Israelis were really unhappy that we did that, to having meetings with Putin where the president has gone to great lengths not to have notes, not to allow the translators in the meeting to, you know, appear before the Congress, to to actually cover it up. And, you know, uh, Greg, our, our president reveals much in his tweets um, like his inability to spell, among other things. But one of the things that he reveals is his true character. And today, in tweeting about this for the first time, uh, the president said, do you think I would be so stupid as to have a conversation uh, that I shouldn't be having on an open line when other people could be listening? Which I guess implies that if he was going to sell out the United States, he would do it um, more privately. <laughs> Can I can I add to that? <laughs> he he says at the end of the tweet that of course he acts in the best interests of America, which which I thought was you know a really interesting thing that he felt the need to assert <laughs> right at that moment, right? <laughs> because what one of the things that I and I do agree that in this sense this really is another order of, of scandal. Um, one of the things that I think suffuses this whole story is what I think is becoming an an you know unavoidable sense for media elites and political elites that the president just isn't acting in the interests of the country. And and that to me seems to me to be what this story kind of highlights in a way that maybe some of these others haven't quite highlighted as vividly. I mean, here you've got a, a promise to a foreign leader and an extraordinary amount of perversion of the law in order to prevent um, uh, one of the branches of government, the one that's supposed to conduct oversight, from getting even the barest amount of information about what happened. It's and, and then if you if you look at the Department of Justice's role and 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 remind yourself of how William Barr falsified the findings of the special counsel 
in order to mislead the country about um, another uh, investigation into into Trump's, in essence, betrayal of the country, this story becomes really hard to avoid, right? I mean, this is this president is betraying the country on one front after another, and he's destroying our institutions in, as part of an effort to make sure that none of it ever comes to light. Yeah. I mean, the reality is that a very substantial number of American people and senior U.S. public officials, including theoretically the inspector general of the Directorate of National Intelligence and a whistleblower and some members of Congress, don't trust the United the president of the United States. They just they're just right. not sure That's that right. that it, that he's loyal to to the United States. Now, Evo, this is you know kind of a complex issue more so than you would think right because there are no um red flashing constitutional lights that go off when somebody sells out the united states if they're the president because the president's allowed to determine what u.s foreign policy is uh the president's allowed to determine what's classified and what's not classified there are a lot of defenses for the president doing things that are just ghastly and saying, well, I got elected, and I have the right to conduct foreign policy, and I have the right to determine how I uh, classify intelligence and use intelligence. And if you don't like it, too bad. Um, on the other hand, you guys have just done a study that shows that the American people actually have sort of traditional views towards foreign policy and may not be comfortable with this. Now, I know you didn't ask them about Donald Trump's sort of you know values in your in your in your study, but but the values that the, the American people seem to be embracing are very different from his, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, to just to turn to a more uh, promising and optimistic part of the conversation, uh, we do an annual poll at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs to find out what Americans think about foreign policy. And uh, we we wanted to, in this case, look at the, to what extent is it true, as it seems to be among many people, uh, who write about foreign policy, that the American public is sick and tired of our being engaged abroad and want to retreat from the world. So we basically started going after that question. And what do we find? We found that uh, Americans uh, are more interested today in being engaged in the world, in playing an active role in the world, which is a question we ask uh, specifically, uh, than they have been in many, many years. It's at near high. 69% of Americans want to the U.S. to have an active role in world affairs, uh, and uh, only 30% want to stay out of world affairs. That's a big number. But then we pushed behind it. What does that really mean? And uh, we asked, what do you think an active role entails? Uh, and the kinds of answers at 65 to 75% are engaging in alliances, making sure that uh, we maintain our uh, a strong military, that we engage in international institutions, that we are active diplomatically. Uh, are all things that Americans support. And then when you ask what does what makes America safe, uh, the number one thing that uh, Americans think that make us safe is alliances. 74% of Americans think that alliances make us safe. Military superiority makes us safe. Strong military. Uh, trade, uh, which Americans now see as overwhelmingly beneficial to the American economy. 87% of Americans think that trade is good for the American economy. Uh, and even issues like democracy and human rights, which have traditionally had less support publicly, are now supported by large numbers of Americans. 
in short, the kind of traditional American foreign policy that Republican and, and uh, Democratic presidents have conducted since 1945, strong alliances, open economic systems, support for democracy and freedom, finds widespread support among Americans. Just one problem. Uh, none of those things is, uh, are, is where Donald Trump is. He doesn't believe in alliances. He is a protectionist. And he wouldn't care less whether democracy uh, spreads around the world because all of his friends uh, and the most important friends he has are, are autocrats like Putin and Xi Jinping and, uh, and Kim Jong-un. Um, so uh, the American public is rejecting his foreign policy. Whether that means they will also reject his presidency uh, is a different matter because Americans don't tend to vote on foreign policy. But it is an indication that Three years in, um, the, this foreign policy by this president, the American public is saying no mas. Uh, well, well yeah, for sure. Do you, have a, do you have a response, Greg? Yeah, I'd like to add to that. I think it's in addition to, to that, it's also a rejection of Trump's, uh, Trump's nationalism. And, and I feel like this is not something that um, a lot of pundits and reporters can get their heads around. <laughs> In addition to the stuff on how Trump's uh, protectionism has has uh, made Americans more pro-trade, you also see a, a very pronounced trend in that direction on immigration as well. And even um, when it comes to refugees and, and asylum seekers, you know, large majorities now see, higher than ever before, according to Gallup, see um, immigration as positive for the country. There have been some poll numbers that show surprising support for the proposition that uh, people, that migrants should be allowed to seek asylum. And what I think we're seeing here is a rejection of xenophobic nationalism, right? I mean, you know, there's, there's been, a, there's often a presumption granted to Trump that, that he's operating from some sort of uh, economic nationalist vision that includes not just uh, cracking down on bad trade deals and, and keeping away immigrant labor com competition, but also includes infrastructure spending and uh, a strong safety net. But of course, that second half, the, the infrastructure spending and the strong safety net side of the supposed economic nationalist vision of Trump has been entirely abandoned, right? And he's completely embraced um, conventional uh, Republican plutocracy, even as the other side of his nationalism turns out to be largely xenophobic in nature, right? It's all about um, it's all about demonizing immigrants, and even his tr his uh, his trade policies are largely uh, xenophobic in nature. They're all about blustering about the Chinese and hating on globalists and so forth, right? And, and I think, and I hope, I should say, that majorities have come around to the view that that, the, that there's been this kind of violent collision between Trump's uh, promises and the complexities of, of today's realities. And, and I hope that uh, the Democrats will take that to heart and campaign aggressively um, in favor of more immigration as a good thing for the country, as well as um, more um, internationalism when it comes to trade. And so we've just got to hope that there's been this kind of massive rejection of Trumpism across the board, not just on foreign policy. I think these things are sort of all woven together, really. 
Well, I, you know, I think it's interesting when we talk about the rejection of Trumpism, but but you have a simultaneous thing going on, Ryan, which is Trump's essentially rejection of the foreign policy status quo, the U.S. system, law, oversight, the Congress. Uh, and, you know, increasingly, you know, he is recognizing the, the the enormous powers the president is given, particularly in these areas re- regarding foreign policy, um, and and essentially cutting all ties to the constraints past presidents have had, process ties, legal ties, oversight ties. He's a little satellite flying around doing whatever he he wants. And we saw also this week an example of 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 what that might look like in the near future, right? Because the Prime Minister of Israel um, faces potential uh, criminal charges on three different cases um, and has now kind of sort of lost two elections in a row uh, and realizes that if he is kicked out of office, a lot of the sort of privileges that protect him from prosecution will evaporate. And he may end up in the slammer. And it's led him to do some really extraordinary things from talking about um, uh, uh, taking over new chunks of the, the Jordan River Valley um, to ignoring the law. Um, and, you know, there's 18 months to go of Trump, potentially. And he may face the same kind of things. Right now he's in a bubble. The bubble bursts if he's not reelected president of the United States. And 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 so he can I mean, we've seen norms pushed, but he could push them much further, right? Right, especially if he's motivated by looking after Trump. Um so it's also interesting, like with Netanyahu after the loss this week, he immediately pivots to saying, Oh, I want to now form a a consensus uh, government with the center center left, because he knows that's what he needs to stay in power. Um, and it's it's all just purely transactional. It's who you you know want to align with at the moment. Similarly, Trump does the same to him. Um, after having uh, aligned himself so closely with Netanyahu, when Netanyahu goes down in defeat, uh, Trump says, "Oh, it's not about any particular person. It's just about Israel." <laughs> So so they're just so similar in their characters in that way. Um, And then, that's right, they are similar in their um, legal predicament. Um, And also this past week, it sounds like the New York state authorities are marching ahead um, with their potential prosecutions of uh, falsifying business records for uh, hush money payments, at least. Um, And if the courts think that a president is immune, they would, good likelihood, they might think he's immune also from state prosecutions. So... Staying in power is uh, vital to him, and um, if he's a caged animal and the thought is that there's only one way in which he avoids all of that by being reelected, uh, who knows what stops are pulled out. So that, that's in one way of even thinking about the polling and all the rest of it and where the public is. I think if he thinks he can tap in, still tap into um, xenophobic, nationalistic uh, sentiment, that's, his, that's the ticket. So I think the next several months are uh, very treacherous. Yeah, by the way, he he did his his lawyers have filed a countersuit saying that as a president, he can't be prosecuted 
uh, including criminal prosecutions, which takes this very kind of thin thread of the Office of Legal Counsel opinion regarding what the Department of Justice does and tries to extend it to all prosecutions of all sorts by states and the federal government, which is kind of a, a, a reach, but you're the lawyer. Um, I think the there's very strong views by some of the leading constitutional voices of each of their generations that have said basically the OLC position is incorrect. Maybe um, a president can't be prosecuted while in office, but absolutely, you know, basically coming down and there have to be cases in which a president can be indicted while in office. So, so let me ask you a question, Eva. We've only got a couple minutes here. Um, you know, you go out, you do a study like this, you talk to the, the American public, um, and it seems like nothing has changed. And yet you read the news, and it's like we're in an alternative universe. It's the twilight zone. The president of the United States is behaving in ways that are unimaginable, abetted by senior officials in his government, like the attorney general, and and Republicans in Congress. It seems right now we're at a moment where the president of the United States really is above the law, can do whatever he wants, including sell out the country. And it seems really, really unlikely that anybody's going to do anything about it, including the Democrats, because, look, Nancy Pelosi has said to you know people close to her, she's not going to pursue any kind of impeachment if she doesn't think she can get a conviction in the Senate. And she can't get a conviction in the Senate. And once you go in with that point of view, you're stuck. And so, you know, the United States faces at least 18 months of the twilight zone. Uh, and I'm just wondering, you, you know, you've been in the government a long time. You've been in this world a long time, isn't it? I mean, how do you deal with that scotch and, you know, I mean, what, what's the, how, how do you, how do you, how do you cope with the fact that we seem to be descending further and further into uh, an alternative universe? Well, I think there are two universes. I think you know most people go uh, and uh, and do their day to day thing. They they worry about the, the fundamentals of life, uh, where the next paycheck is going to come from, whether they will have enough money if they get sick, uh, whether their doctors are accessible, uh, whether their kids will get a decent education, uh, if they go a little further, whether their food is safe, uh, whether the climate is changing uh, too rapidly or not. Um, and, and and worry less about what's happening on the day-to-day uh, uh, rigmarole in Washington, which to many is is very hard and difficult to follow. I mean, I live in Chicago. This is not a uh, a, a place where 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 what happens in Washington in the details uh, is discussed uh, day in and day out. There are just too many other things that keep it, people busy. But there is an erosion, and you have to sense. That people are are uh, get the idea that certain fundamentals are being eroded, and even people who, who like the the tax cuts and the cuts in regulation, and who like the fact that our Republican judges are taking over our judiciary, are in, in, increasingly worried that uh, the civic nature of our society is uh, is being negatively affected by what's happening. Uh, and and quite a few uh, are uh, will take this conversation we just had about uh, someone who thinks he's above the law, who's having 
lawyers go out to courts to tell them that he is above the law, because that's what it means that presidents can't be indicted, uh, that they can't be prosecuted for crimes they may have committed, um, is, is alien to the American ethos. It's not where we were in, in 1776. Uh, it was, in fact, the very reality of, of uh, a king being above the law that led to the founding of this country. Uh, and we are ultimately a government of law. Uh, and I think Americans know that. I think they care about it. I think ultimately uh, they will uh, act accordingly, um, uh, even as uh, the specifics uh, of what may be happening in one case or another escapes them or is is deemed less important. So, you know, Greg, you're sort of reporting each one of these things in the weeds each day and doing a great job. And those of you who don't follow what Greg is doing in the Washington Post really should, because I, I'm always amazed at the volume of output that you've got on this. Uh, and and well, no, it's it's remarkable, and you've really done some great work. Um, but one tends to get sort of bogged down, you know, in in the weeds on this kind of thing. I would argue that our system doesn't work. I would argue that what we have learned is if the president has a certain kind of support in the Senate and a certain kind of support in the Department of Justice, there aren't checks and balances, uh, that he can do whatever he wants, that he can get away with it, uh, and that Trump, who I don't think has any strategy, tactics, understanding of the government, but just simply by putting his head down and sort of taking the Roy Cohn approach to you know, so sue me and let's see what happens to, you know, to, to, to the U.S. government, has demonstrated um, that the president of the United States can be above the law. And I don't, I, yeah, to, and, right. and I, don't, I, don't, I don't see anything that suggests um, that he's likely to be held to account in the course of the next 18 months. Do you? No, I don't. Um, and I also add that I think there's another important dimension uh, in which we're discovering that the system doesn't work, which is that if you have someone who is willing to, to, to act in such bad faith, there really isn't much recourse, right? One thing we're wrestling with, I think you guys alluded to this a little earlier, when, you know, if the president is the national security threat, then, then what do you do? Um, what what Trump is doing is exploiting this kind of hole in our system in which the president has afforded a lot of discretion on a bunch of fronts, right? Um, immigration is a really good example of that. Immigration law is such that the president has an enormous amount of discretion uh, as to how to use the immigration machinery. And uh, foreign policy is obviously another one. Uh, and what we're seeing on one front after another is just to return to the earlier theme, it isn't just that uh, that he's not operating in the, in the country's interests. Um, it, it's also that there's just simply no bottom to the amount of bad faith that 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 we're getting from him. I mean, basically, just about every decision is all about his own financial and political needs. Whether it's uh, pardoning Joe Arpaio because he thinks his rally crowds will like it, um, and whether it's um, you know pushing for a much faster construction of the wall, because even though, as our reporting revealed, he doesn't actually think it's effective in keeping out migrants, 
Uh, he, but he understands that his base will think that he's failed him if he doesn't get X number of, of, of miles built by a certain date, by, by his, you know, by election day. So he orders uh, underlings to break the law and promises them pardons. It, the bad faith is really a problem, and I don't know how what we do about that, right? I think there's been some serious legal scholarship on this question of of whether political systems can can build in safeguards um, uh, against bad faith, and 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 the answer appears to be no, at least in our system. Well. We only have a few minutes left, and uh, just two or three, Ryan. And and I, you know, I don't want to pose a question so sweeping that it couldn't conceivably be answered in two to three minutes. Phew. But here we go. The Constitution doesn't work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it it can't yeah. be it can't be updated fast enough to account for this. I'm not taking into account the fact that the Constitution also creates huge disproportionate power on underpopulated states and 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 that soon the senate will have 30% of the people with 70% of the votes in the senate and that that translates into what recent studies have shown that democrats will lose 65% of all close elections because of imbalances within the electoral college. I'm not we'll set that aside that just wrong needs to be fixed but the checks and the balances in the Constitution, they failed. 240 years in, they failed. They just don't work anymore. And there's no sign on the horizon that they're going to be fixed. Maybe one way to think about it is to ask whether the damage can be minimized. So if, if we can get him out in four years and, and look, he'll, he'll, have, he'll have pillaged the, you know, he'll, he'll, have, he'll have really looted the place pretty badly, right? <laughs> um, pocketed God knows how much taxpayer money, and you know, untold numbers of migrants will will have suffered horribly, and many will have died as part of the um, re- um, return to Mexico policy, which, by the way, is another scandal that's really under the radar, and I think we'll start to learn more about. But maybe the way to think about it is the best we can do is minimize the damage. Yeah, I mean, to, another way to put it is. The immune system of the United States has finally encountered the drug-resistant bacteria mm-hmm. that it doesn't work for. Just like you know, you find this in hospitals and so forth. And Trump is kind of the drug-resistant bacteria that that we don't have a a, a vaccine for. Um, following on what the way Greg kind of came at the question, I, I think I want to do the same, which is. To say that, you know, I do think that the, in a certain sense, the Constitution was working up into this point. It's not made for this kind of president, where wittingly, unwittingly, he poses a threat in different ways. Um, and uh, if there were norms in the past that held up these institutions, he's more than willing to drive through the norms. And in fact, that's a that's a positive because he's a disruptor. So to destroy the norms is a is there's just a, a presumptive advantage to that. So in his mind. So I think that, uh, you know, this is a stress test for the Constitution and the country. And uh, what we hopefully will learn from it are that how norms are not enough and we need to build more resilient institutions and be concerned about any occupant of the Oval Office having their emotional and psychological and self-interests working 
in a direction that would not always serve the country so that we, when we come out of this, we can build, like post-Watergate, better institutions around um, the concerns and threats that we've now seen really present in the country, if we make it in a certain sense, because I do think the next 18 months, we've come so close to the brink on so many extremely bad outcomes, like nuclear war with North Korea. Um, but once once we get beyond that horizon, I think that we can at least reflect on and be much more aware of how brittle our institutions are and how we need to uh, update them. Well, I certainly hope the Warren administration is up to it. Um, uh, <laughs> not, that's not an endorsement. I'm just speculating at one scenario. Um, folks, thank you very, very much. This has been another extremely illuminating conversation here at Deep State Radio. I do, by the way, apologize. We're 250 conversations in, and I would say 247 or eight of them have kept true to our commitment to always have uh, gender diversity balance on our panels. And in fact, many of them have been all women conversations. And today, uh, though, a couple of women that we had wanted to have on the panel had to drop out at the last minute. So you've got these guys, but they're really, really good guys. And I strongly suggest that you go and follow what Greg is doing. And, the, you know, the Plumline GS is his Twitter handle, or you go and follow what Evo and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs are doing. Go look up this study online at their website. It's really, really uh, interesting, uh, a little counterintuitive and very encouraging. And go and follow, of course, what Ryan is doing uh, at Just Security, where they are providing insight into these issues in real time. Um, and uh, uh, it, it's essential in a time like this to follow people like this. And I feel we're really privileged to have them here. Uh, if you want more from the DSR network, go to the dsrnetwork.com where we have all of our podcasts and a bunch of other content. And uh, uh, while you're there, you know, there's nothing to stop you from clicking on the membership button. And uh, you know, for like 60 bucks a year, you go can become a member uh, 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 I can promise you nobody is making a lot of money off of deep state radio, but we would like nobody to lose a lot of money off <laughs> of deep state radio. And so if you buy membership, it helps support us and more programming like this. And, uh, we'd appreciate it if you would do that. Uh, in the meantime, thank you, Greg. Thank you, Evo. Thank you, Ryan. And thank you all of you for listening to deep state radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you. <laughs>